One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This edition of NewsHour Extra was first broadcast at 0800 GMT on Friday the 18th of September. You're listening to NewsHour Extra with James Kamarasamy. Bloomsbury in London is best known for its literary connections, but I've come here to witness artists of a different kind. This is the training ground of the Belsize Park Rugby Club, the most widely toured amateur club in the world. Mind you, who'd want to go on tour when you've got a rainy London evening like this? There is great excitement here, not just because the BBC is visiting, but because the Rugby Union World Cup is beginning. For most fans, that means several weeks of armchair, sprinting, swerving, drop-kicking and tackling. But for those at the top of the sport, representing the 20 countries taking part... It's going to be the safest World Cup ever. At least that's what the rugby authorities tell us. There'll be new rules for scrums to protect players' necks and no-one who's concussed is allowed back onto the pitch until they're assessed by an independent medical expert. It is a reaction to the growing number of injuries in the sport. In the 2013-2014 to English Premiership season, there were 59% more concussions than in the previous year. And it's not just rugby. The new film starring Hollywood star Will Smith is all about the brain injuries that have been suffered by American footballers. It's called concussion. So, are some sports simply too dangerous? The rugby authorities are saying this is going to be the safest ever World Cup. Is that something you ever think about? Do you ever think about injuries and safety? No, I think try not to think about that. Because uh, if, if you start doubting and you know being afraid of getting injured, then uh, that's probably the best way of getting effectively injured. So I think you know you don't really think about it. You just hope it won't happen and you know see how it goes. <laughs> It's always in the peripherals, um, but it's not something on the forefront. You almost um, trust your ability to look after your body. Um, you understand the risk going into it. Hopefully everyone plays within the rules of the game and, in, and within the spirit of the game. Of course, safety is something I think about, uh, especially being a you know, full-contact sport, of course. Um, and you're, you're up front, you're in the scrum? Yeah, yeah, I'm right in the middle of it. Do you worry about it? Uh, I do, probably not as much as I should, especially when I'm like out there in the field. You don't kind of, you're not really too worried about it in the moment. Have you, I mean, have you ever had any injuries? Have you ever had any head injuries, concussion? Yeah, yeah, I've had a fair share. Yeah, <laughs> I've had a few of those, but um, that's that's part and parcel of the game, really. Oh, some views from the AstroTurf there. You're uh, probably thinking that sporting injuries, that's a, a big subject. You'd be right. So just to set out the parameters of this programme, we'll, we'll concentrate on, on team contact sports in the main rugby, rugby union and American football, where information has come to light in recent years about the potential long-term dangers of repetitive injuries sustained on the pitch. We'll uh, find out about the science. We'll ask why there seem to be more serious injuries in some sports these days. And we'll look at how governing bodies are reacting. And in the second half of the programme, we'll discuss sports in schools. We'll hear from one father in Canada whose 17-year-old daughter died from injuries she sustained during rugby games. And we'll be asking what all of this means for the future of the sports we're considering. 
And joining us for this edition of News Out Extra, we have Dr Alison Pollock, who's Professor of Public Health Policy and Research at Queen Mary University London. She's the author of Tackling Rugby, which uh, looks at injury rates in school rugby. Um, we've also got, uh, from the medical profession from Manchester, Dr Barry O'Driscoll, former uh, Ireland Rugby Union International, and he was also uh, former uh, Chief Medical Advisor for the International Rugby Board. Uh, he's also, for fans of rugby, um, from a... Quite a dynasty, really. He's the uncle of Brian O'Driscoll, who was uh, captain, of course, of the Ireland team and uh, the British and Irish Lions as well. Uh, we also have here in London Mike Carlson, who's a London-based broadcaster, uh, who will be commentating on the NFL for the BBC this year, he's just told me. And uh, he's also been looking into some of these big issues uh, surrounding brain injuries that's, uh, that has uh, affected the uh, professional game in America. And from Boston, we have author Steve Armand, former fan of professional football, we might say. He's the author of a book, Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. We'll be finding out um, why uh, he wrote that manifesto a bit later on. But let's start with the medical side of this. Um, And let's start with you, Alison Pollitt. We heard there from some amateur rugby players, some more concerned than others about what was happening to them. How concerned should they be? They should be extremely concerned because rugby is actually a very dangerous sport. There are tens and tens of thousands of people injured from rugby. It's one of the fastest growing sports, but in the UK we know there are tens of thousands of uh, people injured. And these are mainly amateur players. They're mainly children and the amateur players under the age of 24 who will never go on to be rugby players. In some hospital accident emergency departments, rugby injuries account for a quarter to half of all the sport injuries. And sport injuries in young men are about half of all attendances. So this is serious. We're looking at... And, and of course, these injuries are not trivial. They're moderate to very severe. They're anything from neck injuries, spinal cord injuries and paralysis, which are at the rare end, to concussion, which is very frequent. It's about 25% to 30% of all injuries. Um, And, of course, you've got fractures and ligamentous tears and muscle tears. But we are talking about serious injuries... Yeah, interesting. You say most or the majority are in the amateur game. Barry O'Driscoll, as someone who who worked in the professional game, what changes have you seen in in the types of injuries or the severity of injuries? The changes that have happened since I played the game, of course, is it's a different game now. They're much heavier, they're much faster, uh, much fitter because they're professionals and they run at each other and it's a huge impact game now. And, of course, it's grown terrifically, the game, but part of the reason it's attractive to the people watching it on television is these impacts and, inevitably, they're going to result in, as Professor Pollock said, 59% increase in the concussion. I just hope it's a brave statement for World Rugby to say that it's going to be the safest ever, probably after the event is wisest time to say that. And a couple of the uh, young players who were interviewed, they said they understood the risks, but the risks are not fully given to the players by World Rugby. Things like long-term neurogenerative problems are not spelt out for them. Uh, And this is one of the problems, because we're obviously not getting through, despite the fact that World Rugby have made big efforts to spell out guidelines, uh, etc. And at the... um, professional game they're not following those guidelines anyway so there are a lot right. of worries there right well we'll we'll discuss the reaction of, of governing bodies to all this in a minute i'm, I'm just going to bring our, our american colleagues in at this point just to to switch the focus slightly because we're going to start with a, a case study from from the united states mike carlson 
Tell us a bit of the background of, of what's been discovered in, in the NFL in recent years and, and this, this huge class action lawsuit that's, that's happened. Yeah, a, a big class action suit was brought against the National Football League by over a thousand former players um, saying that the league had hidden the effects of con- repetitive concussions uh, from the players and uh, not protected them enough. That was settled last year in, in a huge settlement, uh, which was primarily, I think, a case of making the settlement from the player's point of view be, rather than drag it out for, for years and years in court and from the league's point of view um, to get off actually fairly easy in a, in a with, a say, a, a billion-dollar settlement in a business that turns over $9 billion or so a year. But what ha- what is the core of the case is long-term repetitive injury damage to the brain playing American football from players through mostly from about the 60s through the 90s, but but carrying on into the present game. Right. And this has come out quite recently. I mean, the last 15 years, hasn't it? Exactly. I mean, how did it come out? A number of very high profile cases of of players, big stars, say from the 1970s, living in boxes, um, uh, suffering severe psychological damage, players uh, stealing trucks and and being killed in in chases on the highways, Uh, players in recently in the last few years committing suicide and not damaging their brains because they wanted their brains to be left for study at at Boston University. And these these were very high profile players. And... I mean, another one of the, the reasons, I think, behind being willing to settle and not wanting to be in court was that going to court, you would you would get a lot of questions about not only, as uh, Barry O'Driscoll was saying, the, the change in ga- the game as players get bigger and faster and mass times velocity equal uh, increases impact, but also questions about using performance-enhancing drugs, using recreational drugs that could accelerate or exacerbate um, the effects of, um, of concussion in particular. And that, just to say it quickly, that basically begs the whole question of other injuries in American football. Um, this is a ra- relatively new area. Right. Well, let's, at this point, let's take a pause and let's listen to a case study. Uh, one of those high-profile players who was actually involved, who was a plaintiff in that big class action lawsuit. He's called Leonard Marshall. He was a defensive lineman for 12 seasons in the NFL. The height of his career, he was a a central figure in the New York Giants defence that was known as the Big Blue Wrecking Crew. It uh, won two Super Bowl victories, 1986 and uh, 1990. Well, he's now turned to uh, spreading awareness of the long-term impact of head injuries. He was one of the very first living players to be diagnosed with a condition known as CTE, um, and let's let's have a listen to what he told me when he spoke to me from his home in New York. Um, I asked him when he first began to realise that he was suffering from a neurological disorder. Well, around 2007 uh, through about 2009, you know, I started realising that my, my behaviour was changing. And um, I didn't know why. And... I was getting calls from friends of mine, other players that had played in the NFL during my era, and they were telling me about complications and problems they were having and lack of communication they had with their family and their children and their spouse, and that, you know, some of their behavior was extremely erratic, and uh, they just didn't understand what they were going through, and they were searching for answers. For the most part, 
And these men were on their own. And they were trying to determine what was going on, and they really couldn't, they couldn't do so. So when you started having your, your problems, did you immediately think, this is more likely than not because of my football career, because of what happened to me then? It's, it's funny you say that. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what made me, you know, have moments and spats with my ex. I didn't know what made me attack the most minute thing in my life uh, in terms of communication between me and my daughter. I just didn't understand it. As I continued down the path, I started interviewing other players about it. See if they can get some help. And, and for, I mean, for you, that help involved eventually getting the test, didn't it, at UCLA and discovering that you did have CTE. That's correct. For me, that's correct. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of friends from college that are involved in this space. So it made sense for me to, you know, to dive into the, the study at UCLA and work with Dr. Linus and, and work with Gary Small and, and the medical practitioners at UCLA. Now, you're involved in trying to educate the, the, the next generation yes. about the, the problems of concussions and brain injuries. I mean, I just want to quote your, your fellow giant Hall of Fame linebacker Harry Carson. He said, from a physical risk standpoint, I knew that you could get hurt physically. I assumed that risk. But from a neurological risk standpoint, I didn't know. So knowing what I know now, I would never have played football. What's your own view about your career and the traumas that you got as a result of playing football? Does that make you rethink your career, what you did? Listen, you know, everyone would love to recall a mistake. I mean, you ask any guy who, who got divorced and didn't think it through, would he recall it? Absolutely. They all would. My situation is this. I would love to have known what I know now then and then been able to make a well-determined uh, and well-thought-out decision of whether or not to play football as a professional. But in hindsight, football shaped my life. Football gave me the ability to take care of my family, put a couple of siblings through college, um, buy a couple of homes, take care of some personal responsibilities. So do I regret football? No. But had I known what I know now, it would have enabled me to make a, a, a more calculated and well-thought-out decision of how long to play the game and to what extent I played the game. You're still very involved in football. You, you watch, you commentate. What is it like now... It actually watching games and knowing that there is the potential out there for these these guys who are taking the knocks to to have long-term injuries when you when you watch the game now do you look at it in a different way well I, I, it's a bittersweet situation i can tell you that but yet the game is getting smarter the people involved in football are getting a lot smarter the cross that we bear enable that to happen. I'm involved with a concept here in America called practicelikepros.com. 
showing you how to how to practice the game of football with marginal contact. Leonard Marshall there. Let's bring in Steve Armand at this point. Steve, you're not a Giants fan, a Raiders fan, I believe. Uh, I think um, when you listen right. to, to Leonard Marshall, what, what are your thoughts? What are your reflections? Well, the fascinating thing is that, you know, Mike mentioned this massive lawsuit is eventually joined by actually 5,000 former NFL players. And the allegations there weren't just that the NFL had, had uh, failed to inform players. It was actually a fraud and deception. The NFL essentially took the approach of the tobacco industry, um, which was to initially deny for about a decade that there was any link between football and brain injury and brain illness, and then to obfuscate, and then to actually create a bunch of junk science. They spent about a decade uh, basically hiring uh, doctors to publish studies that have since been debunked. This is straight out of the big tobacco playbook. And as a result of that lawsuit and the emergent medical research, essentially medical research has caught up with the sport. And one of the most fascinating stories that was incredibly undercovered last year in the NFL was that the NFL itself presented papers in federal court related to this lawsuit in which their own actuaries estimate that up to 30% of NFL players, former players, are going to suffer long-term cognitive ailments, which is a polite way of saying brain damage. So you now have the most famous workplace in the United States in which nearly a third of the workers are going to get long-term cognitive ailments. And Leonard Marshall represents a human face to that crisis. But so does Brett Favre and Tony Dorsett and Terry Bradshaw and Junior Seau. And some of these guys who are the most famous players in the NFL, what players do is deny the risk in order to be able to play. You heard that in the clip with these young guys saying, I don't think well, about it. That's, I guess, a key question, isn't it? I mean, how, how much are they aware, um, in theory... And how much are they being deceived? We're starting to see people retire in rugby, and there've been some couple of quite notable retirements in in the last couple of weeks. Jonathan Thomas, thirty-two, over sixty caps for Wales. Uh, he was diagnosed with epilepsy. Um, this quote from him, actually, I, I still think it's the players who need more educating about the warning signs and getting out of that digging in mentality. Uh, Professor Alison Pollock, what is actually happening to your head, your brain? when there is a concussion? Well, it's a very under, uh, understudied subject, but actually what you're having is severe rotational forces in the brain. If you imagine a jelly being shaken and wobbling and you get shearing of the neuronal um, neurons, but also of you get bleeding into the brain. You get a number of things, including, people think, a rupture of the blood-brain barrier where you're getting molecules crossing it. So what you're having is short-term effects and then you can get much longer-term effects. And there are all sorts of other theories going on is infection actually crossing the long-term blood-brain barrier then that's actually setting people up for Parkinson's and dementia in the long term. So, But I think actually it's really important to come back to the fact that Really, not enough is being done by these uh, by the rugby football unions or the governments. They don't have injury data on their websites. They're not informing, and actually, uh, they're just not doing enough about injury. But we do know enough from the collision sports to know that 75, 80% of all the injuries are occurring during collision and contact. So in the case of rugby, 75% of the injuries are occurring during the tackle and two-thirds of all the concussions are occurring during the tackle. So we know enough, as uh, Leonard was saying earlier, we've got to take out the contact. It's about reducing the contact. Yeah, but said, Mike, let's bring you in. Mike Carlson, you used to play, didn't you, um, yes. college days. That, that point about practicing and what Leonard and, and some others are trying to do is, is is that a sensible 
way forward, do you think, actually making practising a lot less physical than it than it has it, been? It, it's, one, it's one way. Um, he's t- I mean, his key quote there was about the extent I played the game. You know, when he played, or just before he played, the season increased from 12 games to 14, and now it's 16 games. As anyone who played at the lower levels knows, um, my high school coaches were far more violent than I think any professional coach would be. Uh, my college coaches were a lot more relaxed, so um, I, had, I had a decent time there. But I think one of the key points with thing, things like CTE is, is I understand if I understand research right, it's not the big hit, the the, the smash um, that knocks you out that necessarily does the long term damage, but the repetition of smaller of smaller concussions, which is why right. taking it easy and not. Um, having so many would would help you. And there was an NFL player, Chris Borland, who after his first season, last season, retired. And he retired for fear of this kind of damage. But he'd only had two diagnosed concussions in his life. One was when he was playing in high school football and the other was before high school when he was playing soccer. But, but Barry O'Driscoll, can I just bring you back in about the changes that have been brought in for this Rugby World Cup, the um, the independent medical professional who has to review uh, anyone who is concussed before they can come back on. I mean, it's interesting, I was looking at, uh, at your nephew, Brian O'Driscoll's uh, memoirs, and he, he talks about one time that, that he was concussed and, and he was just asked, where are you, who are you playing against, what's the score? And if he could answer those, he was, he was allowed back on. And, and, and he makes this point, he says, things have to be taken out of the players' hands. He's absolutely right, uh, Brian, and he is aware of the problem. And as he said on RTE not long after that, well, we are, we have to accept that we're being used as guinea pigs. That is not good enough that they're being used as guinea pigs. But are they being taken seriously enough now? Are the changes that have been brought in for this World Cup, for example, what you would like? Yes, some of them are the independent doctor, but he should be going on the field because that. So that's a, a start for moving in the right direction. But where they've gone very wrong is because originally, when I resigned, they said that if anybody showed any before that any sign or symptom or doubt about a concussion at all, you came off and stayed off, and you had a seven-day return at the very, very minimum. They changed that to five minutes in the professional game, in the elite game, that if you had any of those things, you came off and you had a five-minute assessment, which was meaningless. You cannot rule out concussion in five minutes. It was so disastrous for two years that they've changed it and said, if there's any doubt, if if there's a suspect concussion or suspicion of a potential concussion, you come off and you don't go back. But they're still having the test. Who for? We do not know. So they're still bringing these players off and giving them the test. They've gone halfway, they're playing with words, and it's giving a terrible impression and having a bad influence on people. And you look at some of the games, high highlighted games this year in the Six Nation Championship, and it shows you what I mean. Barry O'Driscoll, thanks very much. Thanks also, uh, Professor Alison Pollock, Mike Carlson and Steve Armand. Uh, we'll be hearing a lot more from uh, all of you in the second half of the programme. When we'll be looking at the, the future, we'll be looking at um, sports in schools and also uh, what this might mean for the future of the Games. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC with me, James Kimarasamy. In this half of the programme, we're going to be looking to the future. We'll uh, start by looking at the, the rugby players of tomorrow and uh, what does this growing awareness of the danger of the sport mean for teaching in schools? Well, it's something I've known about for a long time. I went to a new school at the age of 11 and one of the very first stories I heard when I went there was that the previous year, the school's star rugby player 
had been left paralysed after breaking his neck in a match. Well, my school was at the time, at least, an all-boys school, but in some schools, rugby's also played by girls. And 17-year-old Rowan Stringer was captain of her school team in the Canadian capital, Ottawa. Two years ago, she suffered three concussions in a week and died. An inquest earlier this year found that she had died from second impact syndrome. We'll find out a bit more about that and the particular dangers that children face in a minute. But first, I've been talking to Rowan's father, Gordon Stringer. She played a pre-season tournament on Friday, May the 3rd. It was very hot that day. It was upwards of 30 degrees. At one point in the last game there, uh, she went down. uh, They took her off the field. You know, it, it wasn't anything that was looked quote-unquote severe. When she got home, she did complain a bit of a headache. She took Tylenol, Advil, I'm not sure what it was. Um, the headache went away. She never said anything more about it. My wife thought that was a very hot day. You know, they were somewhat dehydrated and all that stuff. So, And she had a, her first high school game on the Monday, May the 6th. Apparently in that game she went down with a tackle or something and she said it felt like somebody stepped on her head or perhaps a a knee hit her head or something uh, during the tackle she just told this to her friends through um, texting and and whatnot we she never heard anything about that and actually she came home that evening after the game and she had a huge bruise on her knee so um, I was actually more concerned about the visible bruise on her knee she was come again talk to her friends over texting uh, Monday night and someone on Tuesday saying oh, her her head wasn't feeling great but you know kind of a, wasn't sure if I had a concussion or not and they kind of just left it as is didn't tell anybody about it and uh, and she didn't say anything to, to you about her head in particular no not not uh, not on Monday her concern was with her knee. Actually, on Wednesday when I dropped her off at school in the morning, I said, you know, you should probably consider not playing because your knee's pretty badly uh, bruised there. And she kind of gave me the, oh, Dad, come on, you know. Uh, It's just a, you know, it's a bruise. I've had lots of bruises before. So um, it was during that game that uh, she was swing tackled. She landed on her head and and neck, side of her head and neck. And uh, she was unconscious and... uh, at that point, she never regained consciousness. Her brain just uh, swelled so quickly, and uh, th- there was really nothing they could do. Before this happened, had you thought about concussions and, and the implications of, of that for her, for her health? Um, no, not really, because she, she played so many sports, and she's never before then uh, had any problems with uh a head injury or a knock to the head or anything else so um, it really wasn't in our mind that uh, this could be what is going on and now you're you're determined that her death will help others both in terms of the medical side of things and the legal side of things when she passed we uh, we were quite surprised actually by the media starting to call us on the Monday morning. It never even occurred to us that anybody would really have paid any attention to this and um, we kind of made a, a very quick decision that well okay we can we can either sit back and uh, you know be quiet in our grief and and you know kind of keep everything away and keep it to ourselves or 
we could tell her story and um, hopefully it doesn't happen again. But then we got the call from the coroner saying they're actually going to have an inquest into her death. There were 49 uh, recommendations made, uh, the first one being, as the jury termed it, Rowan's Law, having mandatory education in the schools for, uh, for youth and athletes, for teachers and for coaches. Uh, it speaks to proper return to play protocols, proper return to learn protocols, um, removal from play if there's even a suspicion that the player may have uh, a head injury or a concussion. I think a lot of times uh, children and youth, they don't have a complete understanding of the symptoms of concussion and how concussion can really be severe. You know, it's not like your broken arm or your, you know, the slice on your leg from a cleat or whatever it happens to be. It's something that's hidden. Some people have said rugby is just too dangerous a game for children to play. Have, have you reflected on on that? Would you agree with that? Um, no, actually, from the beginning, we've never taken that stance. Um, Rowan loved the game of rugby. When properly played, uh, we believe that it is, you know, a, a, a proper tackles and, a, you know, proper ways to, to go down with your opponent. Um, these things are, are measures that keep players pretty safe. I mean, before then, she had never, you know, other than a few bruises and whatnot, she'd never had any, you know, severe head knocks or anything like that. Quite frankly, second impact syndrome and multiple concussions can come from almost any type of activity. You know, you could fall off your bike and get a concussion. You can, uh, you know, trip going up the stairs at your house and get a concussion. So. Yes, she was killed by uh, an illegal tackle, a concussion, yes. But, um, you know, rugby is a rough sport, yes. Uh, nobody's arguing that. Gordon Stringer, whose daughter Rowan died at the age of 17 uh, after playing a game of rugby. Well, listening to that, um, our guests, we have uh, in Boston, Steve Armand, former fan of professional football, has written Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. Mike Carlson's here. He's a London-based broadcaster who's uh, commentating on the NFL for the BBC this year. Uh, in Manchester, Dr Barry O'Driscoll, former Ireland uh, Rugby Union International and uh, former Chief Medical Advisor for the International Rugby Board. And also here, Professor Alison Pollock, who uh, is a Professor of Public Health Policy and Research at Queen Mary University, London. I'm going to start with you, Alison Pollock, because I know you've thought about your own sons and um, whether or not they should play sport like this. Yes, um, I think every parent asks themselves that question. But one of the problems is parents aren't given the information, so they don't really know. And schools aren't monitoring the information. Government isn't monitoring the information, and neither are hospitals. So we rely on surveys. And that's what prompted me to write my book, Tackling Rugby, because there was no information out there for parents. And children are in a special category because we have a special duty of care to children. Um, they're not like adults. They're not making their own uh, choices. Often these games are compulsory in schools. They have no choice. And they're organised sports. It's not like being on your bicycle outside. It's an organised sport where 
the local authority and the school has a special duty of care. So it's a real worry that this sport is both compulsory but also mirrors the professional sport. In many ways, we should be taking this game, rugby, and making it a children's game. It should not be mirroring and reflecting the professional game. So that is why, you know, this is a high-contact collision sport where 75% of all injuries are occurring during collision and they're extremely severe and they can result, as we heard, in in death and quadriplegia. Barry O'Driscoll, what about the the, the, the medical side of this? For a child, these kind of repetitive injuries, um, obviously we heard an extreme case there that resulted in death, but a child's brain, does does it... react in the same way that that an adult does? Well, what we have to be clear about really is how little we know about uh, concussion. It's frightening how little we do know, but there's a lot of research going on at the moment. But the suggestions are that the the child and adolescent's brain is more vulnerable um, to injury and to concussion and repeated concussion. And I think it's very, very important, as Professor Pollock said, that the parents must be fully, fully informed on this. I think at the moment it should not be compulsory, but a child who's athletically or sports-minded has more more to gain probably from playing rugby if it's properly controlled and they have to lose but as the research comes out and there's not very good news coming out from research nearly all of it is bad news about concussion that might have to change i think it is a slight worry that repeated slight concussions and even sub-concussive blows now appear that they may affect a child cognitively for weeks or months. Now, these children are taking exams and that, so all this must be put to parents, and then it's their choice, and put to the the adolescent when they get to the right age, and it's their choice. There is a huge amount to be gained from a... What is a terrific sport? But... It's got to be weighed up with full information. Steve Armand uh, in in Boston, what are are your thoughts? Well, I was just thinking as, as Barry was talking, you know, we talk about a concussion crisis, but really I think it's the wrong language. You could say that these contact sports, football and rugby in particular, have a violence problem, but it really is more accurate to say that they have a physics and a physiology problem. You cannot have uh, mass times acceleration to equals force, and you have bigger and stronger and faster players coming into these violent collisions. And then you have the brain, which is a soft organ inside a hard shell, and it gets slammed against the inside of the skull. And there are these sub-concussive events, not just one big catastrophic event, but hundreds and thousands of these sub-concussive events. And what's scary about the medical research is that it's suggesting that that is the real risk. That's the kind of invisible plague. There's a study in particular, I just want to mention one study which was of high school football players, and they put you know monitors inside their helmets to say, well, what is the risk cognitively to the kids who are getting concussions? So they had one group of kids who'd received concussions, and another who, the control group, who'd never gotten a concussion. And the frightening thing is that within the control group, the kids who had never received a concussion, never suffered a concussion, they showed cognitive decline to the extent that by the end of the season, a couple of these kids had no function in one of their frontal lobes. Those are high school students. If the same results were garnered through an invisible gas leak in the cafeteria, that school would have been shut down and the media and politicians and lawyers would have descended to make sure that happened. But because it's within the context of sport, the sport that's so hallowed within our cultures, we basically give it a pass. Mike Carlson, I mean, defend sport at school because it's it's not all bad, is it? Um, 
Well, I think support at school has a lot of a lot of good functions, and, and you learn a lot, um, positive and negative, when when you're playing sport. But I think since most sport in America is school based, um, as opposed to club based here in in Britain, um, you have to bear more responsibilities. It's not a new thing in America. I mean, 50 years ago, my mother did not want me to play American football when I went to high school, and I had never played. Uh, peewee or whatever football, which which I think is ridiculous that kids. That what is young, peewee football? Is it, it like little at league age baseball? Six or seven, yeah. In in some places in America, and the kids play full contact football with with helmets and all, and all of that on, and remembering that the helmet protects, but it's also used as a weapon. It's what makes the the whole concussion issue in American football so crucial. Um, I took my eleven year old son to see his first NFL game last last year, and he had a pretty good seat down by the field and afterwards I asked him if he liked it and he said yeah it was great he said but dad do I have to play American football and, I said, and what's no, the answer no of course not uh, especially because we live over here and then he looked at me and said you must have been a lot tougher than I think you are <laughs> but yeah the um the thing with um with football is that we've known dangers for years and years this is coming the, the whole concussion thing is coming just at the point where American football has become such an intense business right down to the high school level that, for right. example, when I was in high school, I played three sports. The season changed. I, I changed the sports. Nowadays, kids aren't even allowed to do that by their coaches. They spent all year playing American football, training for it, getting bigger, and it, the whole result is to make it more likely that everybody's and going I to get we, hurt. And I guess, again, we, we need to make the difference between what happens in, in America and what happens over here. There's an educational aspect to all of this. Actually, people... Getting sports scholarships and getting into of course, colleges that's, that's is, is a thing. much that's why bigger in high thing school, in America. Yeah, exactly. But it's happening here with the in the UK with academies. All these academies where young people are being channeled into the rugby academies and tennis academies, and then they're actually being discarded because the vast majority of them never make it. We have to think about the rights of the child and put the child at the centre. We know from all the studies, children want physical activity, they love to be active but they want it uh, games to be enjoyable and they want it to remain a game. But Barry O'Driscoll, mm. we've talked a bit about what's happening in the professional game to make things safer, the changes that have been brought in for the Rugby World Cup. What about on a schools level? Are, are there things that you would like to see? Would you like to see more trained medics, for example, on the sidelines? Is that possible even? Well, absolutely I would and it should be possible in schools. I'd like them, if they are playing rugby and they decide that uh, and the parents decide that there's more to be gained, I'd like them to play less games. I'd like them to have uh, less impact in training. I'd like them to be absolutely fully informed. These are things I'd like to see change. Right, I think we're going to move to the fan, really. I mean, we're all fans. I think we're all fans. Um, how much do we as fans bear responsibility for what's happening? I'm going to start with Steve Armand because I described you as a former fan of professional football. Uh, right. And you tell us a bit about that journey. What did you, sure. what made you suddenly see the light and think, well, hold on a second, this, this isn't right? It's probably more accurate to say I'm a recovering fan okay. um, because I still love football and it's very important to make a distinction between the game of rugby or football and the industry that with football has become sort of American capitalism on steroids and I think you're starting to see that increasingly um, in the world of rugby. There is this effort to take what was a sort of a folk game, a child's game, and to monetize it somehow. For me, th what happened is I, I was increasingly feeling as a fan that I was complicit in something that was quite corrupt and against my values fundamentally. But what about on, on the, the, the injury issue? Are, we, sure. are, are fans wanting more and more 
I don't know, gladiatorial type well, contest. Well, is that course, what it is? Of course they are. I mean, we say we don't, we say we, we're horrified, but the TV stations know us better than we know ourselves. That's why they have those parabolic mics on the sidelines that pick up every bone-crunching decibel of the hits, and that's why they replay the biggest impacts over and over again. We tell ourselves we just want to see the feats of grace and poise and heroism, and that's true to some extent, but we also want to see the big impacts, that sort of primal, aggressive that football provides. For me, the moment where I guess I became an apostate was uh, my mother suffering a, a delirium. I flew out to California and I walked into an ICU room, intensive care unit room, and my mother was essentially gone. She's a fiercely intelligent woman and she suddenly didn't know the day of the week or where she was. She felt she was in a terrible nightmare. And it suddenly made real the circumstances that all fans are in, which we consume that extreme violence and that athletic heroism, and then 10 or 20 or 30 years later, when we're not really focused on it, there are people like Leonard Marshall whose lives and brains are falling apart, and we don't want to look at it. So I finally was forced to look at it. This is interesting. I mean, perhaps I can bring uh, Alison Pollock in on this one, because you were talking about the lack of information um, that there is out there. Now, in America, clearly, there is more information coming out about these, mm-hmm. these head injuries. Here's a quote from, from uh, Malcolm Gladwell, um, the writer who writes on all sorts of things, but he's written on sport. He said, we might go to what he calls a middle position where we will disclose the risks and essentially dare people to play. So he's saying that the people know about these head injuries, the people who are playing them, playing the sports with this in mind, are essentially people we're saying, go on, take the risk, do it for us. Well, that's all very well for the professional players, but the problem is the link between the professional, the corporatised game and the amateur game. You know, as Steve has already said, it's heavily commercialised and they need, the professional game needs all the school children, all the amateur clubs to feed into that game. And what we're actually seeing is state-sponsored violence, both in the US and the UK and elsewhere. They sold off the media rights, they privatised all that. We've had billions and billions of state funding flowing into these sporting bodies, either directly through uh, via schools or through sports uh, sporting bodies or sporting agencies. Strong, strong phrase there. Mike Carlson, you're commentating on state-sponsored violence. How would you Well, states say? sponsor an awful lot of violence. They wouldn't exist without right. it. Um, the Battle of Waterloo was one on the playing fields of Eton. Um, <laughs> spring, springs to mind. Um, but Gladwell's not far off because in America, the, the phrase soccer moms largely begins and ends with mothers who do want to protect their kids from playing American football and, and therefore they, they start playing uh, football in the international sense of the word. But I think if you look at boxing... For example, we've known for a long time that boxers come out punchy, as they used to call it. And there's been a big move against boxing, some moves to um, make it a little bit safer for the professional boxers. Amateur boxing has always tried to be a step ahead on that. And right now, boxing is sort of at a low ebb of popularity, for which there are other reasons as well. But but you might say that possibly the, the lack of people going into it and the, the relative control on the fights has lessened its popularity. And mixed martial arts has, has stepped up to take Well, is, is, is there a danger that that happens with football? Um, I think it's a... It's a Definite possibility, because I think the game is going to have to change. And then we will see exactly how much of the fan base is based on the violence and how much of it is based on all the other episodes. But violence, besides the hitting in American football, it's the man-on-man aspect of the game is such a key because it's the most... 
I would say, militaristic and programmable game. In other words, on each play, there's no continual action in the sense of, of players running from place to place and then having to do what they do. In American football, you are in a set place for each play, and you have a set job to do. And the coaching staff are like generals or chess players moving the pieces on the chessboard. But if the chess player doesn't actually physically overcome the chess player on the other side, the whole scheme breaks down. And that's, that's to me, that's the fascinating part of the game. The question is exactly how violent does that confrontation have to be? Barry O'Driscoll, let's bring you in at this point. I entirely agree with, with what has just been said. And my real worry now, is there a way back at the top? Because um, the changes that have been made since I was a player many years ago and gradually have come in have all been to make it more attractive commercially for all sorts of reasons. And we now see the huge empire that the World Cup is. And now it's such a commercial business, it's very difficult to turn it around. And the changes have been huge impacts. The size of the players are increased. The speed has increased. Chest-high tackling and head-high tackling is preferred. Children at school are told, you are an outstanding player. You've got this, sidestep, etc., etc. But you need... 12 more kilograms. Yeah, well, indeed, it's successful and the, the game is more popular than ever, isn't it? Yeah, so I just don't know the way back uh, because it's got to be brought home to sort of things that we're talking about today and the, and the players and parents have got to be told right from the word go yes. that this is an yeah. extremely yeah. potentially I, dangerous and yeah. let them know the research. And I would question I, whether I, the game itself is more popular as a result. The international game certainly is, but I'm, um, as the international game gets so far advanced, I think club rugby has suffered as a result. I'm not, You're absolutely I'm not, right. I'm not convinced club yeah. rugby is more popular No, club than rugby is not. They're losing players all the time. The point I'd like to make, though, is that world rugby makes the laws of the game, and these then are transmitted through the various rugby unions, and then they're transmitted to the schools. So it's actually world rugby which creates the laws, which decides the risks that players are going to be taking. And the rugby unions and world rugby has to have the control of the game for the amateur player and children taken away from it, because it's not going to change unless that happens. Steve Armand, if if more, yep. more and more fans become recovering fans like you and if these right. concerns about sport in schools um, continue and, and fewer people let their children play football, yeah. for example, or rugby over here, um, are we going to see the death of some of these sports? No, we're not going to see the death of them. But I think what we're circling around is that the incentives have changed. The incentive for the idea of playing rugby or football is physical exercise, competition, you know, teamwork and so forth. The incentives as it exists now are essentially money and winning. And what's happened is that you know, essentially th these uh, industries and the governing boards that stand to profit by these games essentially convert our devotion as fans to athletic heroism into this sort of nihilistic engine of greed. That's just what's happening on the ground. The real question for me is where did the popularity of rugby or the massive popularity of American football come from? It isn't a chip that's implanted in our necks at birth. It's an individual decision that millions and millions of fans make to consume the violence as a form of entertainment. The beautiful part to being a fan is that you incur none of the risk, but you get to enjoy all the risk that's incurred by the players, whether it's at the high school or the college or the pro level. And the reality is the only way that it is going to change is for individual, this is what I try to argue in against football. I love football, but I think it's become so incredibly corrupted in about seven different ways, the central one being the risk to the players, 
and the extreme sanitizing of the violence. In football, we don't even see their bloodied heads or their broken bones, which you do see in rugby, and you certainly saw in boxing. That's part of the reason people turned away from boxing in America. Football, American football, has created this sort of perfect storm where they've sanitized the violence and you can sort of pretend that these guys are almost like in a video game, but they're actually human beings who are being maimed for our entertainment. And the reality is until fans start to reckon with that, I don't think there's going to be a significant shift because the forces of money and and winning essentially are too powerfully ingrained in capitalist culture, to put it very frankly. And I think what you're starting to see is that same massive commercialization start to distort the real values of people who are in and around rugby. Just to wrap up, everyone, I just want to ask, despite all these concerns, I mean, will you be watching the world, the rugby <laughs> world cup? I mean, Barry O'Driscoll, I, I guess you're going to be watching, aren't you? Yes, I will be watching, but very much with everything that everybody today has has said been very much in my mind I'll be a very apprehensive where as we've just heard uh, most of the fans probably aren't because it, that's what they're there for the big impacts and the, the huge huge emotion involved in it Alison Pollock no I'm sure my son will but I'll be just thinking about how do we prevent these injuries how do we prevent concussion and actually how do we make change the laws of the game to remove the tackle and make it safe for children and the amateur players Mike? Uh, I'll be watching and wondering why England play once a week on weekends and why the United States has to play on a Sunday and then play on a Wednesday, which I think has got to be more risk for the players, for sure. And Steve, having, having uh, given up on uh, football, maybe rugby? Uh, yeah, in fact, my family, I have three small kids, so we're engaged in a kind of continuous game of rugby inside our house. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, thank you all. That's uh, that's it for this week. Heads together. No, no, but I'm sure only only very, 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 very safe form of rugby. Um, thank you all for joining us on uh, News Hour Extra. Very uh, big thank you to our guests here in London, Professor Alison Pollock and Mike Carlson in Manchester, Dr. Barry O'Driscoll, and in Boston. Steve Armand. Now, if you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archives, you can listen back at bbcworldservice.com. Just search for News Hour Extra. And if you like this week's programme, just make sure you never miss another edition. Subscribe to our podcast. Just uh, look for News Hour Extra in your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, do uh, leave us a review or a rating. And uh, since this is a fairly new programme, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Follow us on Twitter at BBC NH Extra, or you can send an email to BBC News Hour Extra, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we do try to reply to all of them, so let us know what you like and perhaps what you don't like about the programme. From me, though, James Kamara, Sami and the team, that is News Hour Extra for this week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>